Greetings and welcome to the pod. My name is Mark West. Now my voice is a little bit, well, husky this week because of COVID, but it's not me you're here to listen to. Lynn Cox is arguably the most accomplished ocean swimmer of all time. She set the record for the English Channel in 1972, was the first woman to swim the Cook Strait in New Zealand in 1975, famously swam between the US and the USSR in 1987 across the Bering Strait in bone-chilling three-degree waters, and then even colder in Antarctica and Greenland. She has a list of achievements too long to list right now. And Lynn is also an author and has a new book called Tales of Al, the Water Rescue Dog, detailing her experiences with Italy's elite, highly specialised corps of water rescue dogs who jump out of helicopters and save lives. Thanks very much to Noth for sending me a preprint. I had an absolutely fabulous chat with Lynn in which we talked swimming, in which we talked the book, in which we talked all sorts of things. And I started as always by asking her if she had always been an ocean swimmer. No, I didn't start off ocean swimming. I learned to swim in the lakes in Maine, in New England, and loved it. And then my parents thought that we should, my brother and sisters and I, should all basically learn to swim really well. So we went through swimming programs, and then they encouraged us, because we love swimming so much, to join swim teams. So I spent years on swim teams, and then through university, I was also on the UC Santa Barbara swim team. But through that time period, I was also doing open water swims, which was so fantastic because where I went to university was right on the Pacific coast. So I could get up in the morning, work out for two hours, go to classes, and then train with a women's team in the afternoon. And it was ideal. But also it was really great because there were people that were doing research on hypothermia and trying to figure out how people acclimated to the cold. And so they asked would I volunteer for some of the studies. And I was more than happy to help them. But part of the deal was that they said whatever they learned about me, they would tell me about. And then that in turn would help me learn how to train for what I was doing. So this whole background of of swimming and swimming pools. And also I had an amazing coach who was the coach for the U.S. women's the U.S. national team, and then he became the coach for the U.S. Olympic team for four different Olympic teams, and his name is Don Gambrell, uh, and he was the one that was so great in figuring out how to adapt workouts from the pool into the ocean for me. Oh, that's amazing, and that and that story about, because um, you talk about it in, in swimming uh, to Antarctica, about being kind of, you became a science experiment because you you know, being wired up because you swam so well in, in cold water. That's quite amazing that it was evident from, from the start. Well, it was really great because at the university, they had nobody would volunteer to do these cold studies. And so I was trying to do a swim in the Strait of Magellan. And that was like my next goal. And so they said, could we study you? And then in return, they taught me about cold physiology and and acclimatization to cold, but they also let me 
test out my ability in, in a cold tank at the university. And I got in way over my head initially and realized that I couldn't swim in three or four degree C, that it was far too cold for me. But then one of the physiologists who had been a coach said, wait, you haven't trained for it. How can you expect to just do it? And I thought, that is so great that maybe if there's time that I can spend in the colder water and give myself, my body, my mind, everything, a chance to acclimatize, acclimatize then maybe this is possible. So that was really the start of my ability to swim in colder waters. But um, it was also great to be able to do something that people weren't doing, you know, something that was really new and something that would help people because the idea behind the research was to figure out if people can survive in cold water better, what they can do to acclimate, how to rewarm them better after cold exposure. And a lot of the research that was being done in the world was done by William Keating from the University of London. So the group of physiologists and physicians at UC Santa Barbara, where I was going to college, connected me with William Keating. And that was fantastic because he was the one that really was studying cold and did research on me and made me a human research subject. And when I did later swims, he came along as the safety net, but also there to gather information. Uh, I was really, really lucky to have these connections. Uh, it's an amazing story about how your body warmed up in the cold, in the cold water. And you found, uh, so there, is there a big difference between two or, two or three degrees Celsius and six or seven degrees Celsius, like swimming in Antarctica versus swimming somewhere else that's, that's particularly cold? Huge, huge difference. I mean, I think there's a huge difference between swimming in cold salt water and cold fresh water. And nobody's ever been able to really pinpoint why that is. Cold fresh water, to me and to friends, feels a lot colder than cold salt water. And I think also, you know, the swim that I did in Antarctica was in zero degree C. And at that point, that was my colder swim. And then from there, a few years later, I went on to swim in Greenland, which was minus two to minus three degrees C. So that was to me like, you know, to me, swimming in Antarctica was like going to the moon. Going to Greenland was like going to Mars or Saturn. It was, it was so much more difficult. And I was able only to swim a quarter of a mile. Uh, wow. So, but I was able to do it, which was really cool. That's really cool. And you don't, I mean, you don't, you don't think of the fact that water can be below zero degrees. The, the salt can, lets it go lower. The salt water, but also the current speed, because if the water's moving quickly, the ice can't form. So it's a combination of salinity oh, and current and also wind. And so it was really interesting when I did swims off Disco Bay in Greenland, you could see pieces of icebergs breaking off and floating by. So that visually you had, you know, you're swimming with, with ice cubes. Wow. That's <laughs> but so it was also great. There were people that came along with me as my safety net that were watching over me that knew what to do if something went wrong. And that was really key to that because I couldn't push it that far out there and do these swims without knowing that there were people that had my back, you know? No, I mean, your eyes might freeze. <laughs> like, you think of the things that could happen <laughs> oh, actually, to you. <laughs> actually, when I was training to do the swim in Antarctica, I suddenly thought, you know how sensitive your ears can be to cold water? And at that point, I didn't know that if you get cold water in one ear, it can become extremely disorienting and cause sort of vertigo. 
but I thought maybe there'd be a problem with really cold water getting into my ear and cooling me down. So I was talking to my friend who's my dentist, a man named William Poe. And I said, you know, I'm not sure what to do. And he said, well, you know, I used to do tailor made earplugs for patients that were swimming and I use dental material for that. Would you like me to custom make some earplugs for you? So he did. And so that's what I wore during the swim in Antarctica to protect my ears. And later on found out that that was really a smart thing to do, you know. Wow, that's awesome. That's really cool. Well, I, I must I must ask you about about your new book. So I, I finished your book, uh, which is a lovely book, the uh, Tales of Owl. You know the story. It's such a serendipitous story about how you discovered. So, so tell me how you you know how you came across Italy's elite specialized corps of, of water dogs. I mean, that's something I hadn't heard of before. I had never heard of the Italian water rescue dog school. Let me see, Italian school for water rescue dogs. I had never come across it until a friend said, you should see these Newfoundlands and Labradors and Golden Retrievers and German Shepherds and other dogs that leap out of helicopters into the waters off Italy and with their owners who are trained as lifeguards, rescue people and pull them ashore. So I was fascinated with this whole thing, like, when do you ever see dogs do that? And so I started doing some research and saw a clip on the internet um, for the Scuola Italiana uh, Carne Savaggio, but Savataggio, and that's what it is in Italian. And so I saw a black Newfoundland leaping out of a red helicopter into a lake. And I thought, you know, I just have to go there to Milan and find out how they train the dogs to do this. I mean, it was my curiosity that, that carried me away. I'd been there years ago to swim across the Northern Lakes because prior to that I had met Pope John Paul and Pope John Paul was an avid swimmer. And so I had asked him, you know, where are your favorite places to swim? And he said, well, in Poland, but also the Northern Lakes of Italy. So I'd been there before. And so when I saw the clip about the Newfoundland dogs, I thought this is a great way to be able to return there, to meet people, to find out about the dogs. And so I started doing research and through all sorts of connections wound up going to Italy to see how the dogs trained. And I realized that there were huge parallels between the way elite athletes train, swimmers, elite swimmers train, and the way that the dogs and also their owners and the instructors train to get these dogs to become lifeguard dogs. And it was really interesting because there are people that have said to me since then, well, why do you need a dog to pull in somebody from the water? Why can't you just have a lifeguard? And so somebody explained to me that Newfoundlands can pull in six people at a time and Labradors can pull in two to three people at a time along with the owner. So the owner is there supporting and helping as well. So if you have a group of people that have pulled out by a strong current and you don't have a lifeguard right there on site, 
you can use the dogs to get them. But it also turns out that the dogs have been trained to look for signs of somebody in trouble. So instead of just having two eyes on the water, you have two human eyes and two dog eyes or how many other people are there. And I can't remember um, if it was June or July of last year, but there was this episode where there were 14 children in Italy on rubber inflatable rafts that have been pulled out by a strong current and pulled way offshore. And there was a mom that had been out there on one of the rafts. And so she started waving. And there were two instructors with their two lab two Labradors that swam out and pulled all 14 people into shore. So it's not just a theory. It's not, you know, we're just doing this for fun. It's actually they do train, they do prepare, and they're an elite group. And I've written a lot about this in my new book, Tales of Al the Water Rescue Dog. But I've also written about dogs and swimming and courage and learning to swim and all sorts of things that have to do with the water. And I think that, you know, there are so many things that connect with us as swimmers, you know, taking that first leap into the water and how the dog takes the first leap into the water. And that same kind of reassurance that you get or maybe don't get and should have gotten. So um, that's sort of the overview of the new book. And I just found out that if people want to purchase it, they can go to amazon.com.au. Or, um, and if they want to find out more, I have an, a website, lincox.com, which gives more background on the book and my background as an author and as a swimmer. So I really liked, I really liked the book and I, it, something you touched on just then. I really liked the way that it, you know, you talked, you talked about the, the dogs and the dog training, and then you sort of talked about human training and the parallels and then maybe your own um, kind of journey through Italy and Italian food. I noticed how much you, you enjoyed the Italian food and, and, and drinks and whatnot. So well, I, I think, you know, I'm sorry. I think that a lot of swimmers are also foodies yeah. that they enjoy doing or triathletes or other athletes enjoy doing a really hard workout with the idea of when they finish, they can eat something they want to eat or they can try something or they can get together with their friends and have something to eat. And so that was the same pattern that I saw when I was in Italy, where they all worked out together, they all worked hard, they all have been in the water for a long period of time, and they all came together. And it was a time that was sort of joyful, it was joyful, but it was a time that they sort of debriefed and talked about how their dogs did. It was sort of like, you know, going to a big swim meet and and doing well or not doing well, but or playing water polo or doing another sport where you finish and you sort of relax together and you recount what happened during the day. And I think that often when we're doing these sports, we forget about taking that time afterwards to just enjoy what we just did and to continue that connection with friends and family. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's sort of what the book was. The book was like, you know, telling different aspects of the tale and how it relates to different things, kind of like going for, you know, going for a swim and seeing where you end up. I, I quite liked that. It was, a, it was, it was, it was interesting, an interesting tale. I liked um, when you were talking about the, how training dogs like elite athletes, there was some bits in there about how it, the trainers knew when to give the dogs a break, just like the, you know, coaches would know when to give human athletes a break during the training, not overtrain them and, and, and that type of thing. Some of the parallels are really interesting. They were, it's really great that you saw those segments because, you know, when you write a book, you never know how it's going to be received and you never know what will resonate with people. 
But, you know, through the years, I've taught swimmers and I've also taught swimmers that were tremendously fearful. So one of the things I was trying to find out in this journey to Italy was, do these dogs want to do this? And are they getting positive reinforcement? Or are they getting thrown out of the helicopters? You know, what, what's really going on here? And um, it, was, it was done in all good ways. You know, otherwise, I don't think I would have written about it. You know, and a lot of, I don't know if you've seen great coaches that have encouraged people that then in turn have just excelled. And you've also seen coaches that have not been like that where there's been a really negative response or the swimmer gets discouraged and decides not to swim anymore. And so I think there are so many things that we can learn from the way they were training the dogs and the way that we've learned to train and, and train others. Well, I won't, yeah. I won't spoil the ending, but, but the tale of Al is uh, an interesting one. She takes her time, but, uh, you, you you realize that she's she's actually learning on the on the job, just taking a little while longer than maybe some of the other standout students. Well, actually, it's interesting because I mean it's sort of separate. I just remember one time I was teaching a, a young girl how to swim, and she wasn't great at freestyle. She was just okay at backstroke. She did all right on butterfly, but when I taught her breaststroke, she flew across the pool. It was just incredible to see that. And then I was told by her mother that she, the daughter was really pigeon toed and that they had tried to get her to do ice skating and she didn't like it. And they tried other sports to try to get her to turn her feet out and she never did. But when she swam breaststroke because of her pigeon toedness, she was able to extend her feet and toes more and then pull more water in and do an incredible breaststroke. So it was just so wonderful to see that that thing that was conceived of or thought of as really negative turned out to be something that was an advantage that nobody else had or very few other people had. And so I think that, you know, a great coach sees that within somebody that, you know, they may not get it as fast as you get it or your friends get it, but sometimes just being able to figure out how far to push or how far to, or when to stop, that makes all the difference in their ability to do well or to become an, an elite athlete, you know. Do you have any more books in the pipeline? Do I have any more books in the pipeline? Well, actually, yes. Uh, I have eventually a children's book coming out and I have started working on another book. So, um, but first I'm spending the next six weeks doing a real extensive book tour up the east coast of the united states down down up the west coast of the united states down the east coast around the midwest to the pacific northwest then southern california and then from there i'll be going to europe so it's um, a really big book tour but it's really exciting because you get a chance to meet the people who are reading your work and to be able to connect with them and you get to hear a lot of their stories so that for me is the fun part of completing something like you do when you complete a distance or a big swim, you see that completion, but then afterwards connecting with other people that have done something similar and learning from them. You know, I've already collected a number of dog stories that, you know, I hadn't heard about. And, and one of the cool things about this journey through the North American continent, basically, except for Canada right now, but is that there will be 
people along the way that will be sharing stories about their dogs and about Newfoundlands and about swimming. So, um, and about Italian food. <laughs> so th- it's going to be a great time. No, it sounds perfect. So do you think you'll get any swims, swims in on your tour? Do you still swim every day? You know, that's going to be a hard thing to do, but I have planned a lot of swims in hotel pools and then friends that have pools. And when I can in a lake or maybe a river along the way, I don't know that much about river swimming. So with any swim that I do, I spend time checking out with local lifeguards and with harbor masters and all sorts of people because there are things that you don't expect. I don't know if you have this in Australia, but in the United States and Canada, and I think, I don't know about in Europe, but I know in the United States and Canada, there are lakes that will get uh, parasites in them that cause duckage. It's a, yeah, and it's just not a good thing to get. So um, I've learned from friends that there are certain times of the year where they'll swim and they'll also check with the public health departments. So I will be swimming where I can along the way, but not just jumping anywhere. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. that's good advice coming from one of the world's most acclaimed swimmers to, to check it out first. <laughs> it's, you know, a lot of people just like to go jump in, but it's, a, it's good advice. Well, you know, if I ever, whenever I come back to Australia, I'd be contacting you about where can you swim in the Sydney area that's safe, you know, and where, what do you avoid? And I was just in touch with somebody in Florida area and she said, oh, I never swim in the ocean there because there's too many jelly, jellyfish and sharks and the fresh water, you have water moccasins and you have alligators. So I swim in the pool. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I think I would do the same thing. You can show him off to all your friends After he's had a bath And if you dress him up with a cool bandana He's sure to make a big splash You can tell he's smart by the look in his eyes Watching us as we move So what if he's got a bad habit or two, like hiding people's shoes? So you've told, you know, your your story many times to broadcasters and podcasters way more famous than me. Uh, So I won't ask you to to go back over too much, but what do you like to tell people when you, about your swimming career? What, what, What are the stories that you like to tell? You know, I think often people will ask me, what's the most challenging swim that you ever did? Or what is the favorite swim that you ever did? And I thought a lot about it because when you get asked that, you want to have an answer. But I kind of came up with the answer of when I was 14 years old, my goal was to swim across the Catalina Channel. And I did that. And the idea was that if I could do the Catalina Channel, then my goal would become the English Channel. And I wanted to break the world record for men and women. And I was able to achieve that. And then my time was broken. So I went back and broke the men's record again. And then I decided to go on and swim, become the first woman to swim Cook Strait. And that was a hugely challenging swim. But what I realized is that if I hadn't swum Catalina, I don't know that I would have had the confidence or the training level to do the English Channel. And if I hadn't done the English Channel, I wouldn't have met Sandy Blewett from New Zealand who suggested Cook Strait. And if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't. So 
I really think that each swim I've done has built upon what I've done before. And I think that nowadays there are so many people that have gotten into the sport of open water swimming and they're so excited about it. But a lot of people are trying to shortcut it. They just want to check off the list of I've done this swim, I've done that swim. And I think that often what happens is they haven't been able to really put in the distance or time or the acclimatization. So then they attempt the swim and it doesn't work and they come back and then they have to look at what didn't work and then evaluate whether or not they want to try again. And often they'll try again, but again, it's like you really need to spend the time, the energy the effort to get it right the first time. And I think I was really fortunate that I often over-prepared for swims. Uh, and there was one point though, where I was training to swim Catalina, well, San Pedro channel, also known as the Catalina channel. I was planning, I was training to do it again to break the world record. And I had a coach that had me overtrain. So I was training up to six hours a day in the ocean. And by the time I did the swim, I was so burnt out that I really didn't care. I really didn't want to do the swim. Uh, and I wound up on that swim getting lost in the fog and deciding then that I never wanted to do another swim again. And I was really lucky because at that point I was 17 years old and I could have stopped, but I had my parents and a friend who was a psychologist who had tried the English channel four times. His name was Fami Atala. And Fami basically said, you have to go back and do the swim. And then if you want to retire, go ahead, but you really need, otherwise it'll bother you forever. So I went back and I did it and I broke the world record for men and women and then decided that I want to do other things after that. So I was really fortunate to have people encouraging me. And also after that point, though, I realized that I needed to coach myself, that I knew what I needed to do to reach a goal. But I also had myself to blame if I didn't make it. I couldn't say, oh, the coach overtrained me or, you know, he didn't understand or whatever, or she didn't understand. It was me that got myself there. And then it was my support team that helped me so much to make sure I was safe during the swims. And so that's sort of been after I was, I think, 17 years old, I started really coaching myself and was able to get support to do swims. And actually, the other part is that, you know, it's always the local knowledge that makes all the difference. It's the local people who give of themselves, who give their knowledge, who are part of this great adventure that make the, dif the difference, you know. I guess you started to, I guess by then you knew what made yourself tick. You knew how your body worked and uh, you knew, you knew how, how to get through these, these long things by yourself. I think, I think that to do the things that we do, we need to have some confidence in ourselves. And we are also having to make sure that we get to work out and do the training. And if we can't do the training, then how can we expect to get to the goal? And so often I think, okay, a huge swim is not just a swim, it's the mountain you have to climb. And the swim itself is just the summit. You know, but you can't do the summit without all the work toward it. So there'd be times along the way, I mean, where I'd go, I don't feel like working out today. I'm tired. And most of the time I talk myself into going and doing it. But there's some days where 
there's a reason to just take it off. You need the break physically, but you also need the break mentally. You just need to be with your friends or your family or do something different because having your head only in the water for long periods of time gets kind of boring too, you know? Well, what do you, what, what do you, what do you think about when you're, when you're in the water for 10 hours or even two hours? What, well, what do you think you about? It changes. I mean, there's a friend named Eileen who I swim with in Long Beach, California right now. And we were just having a very philosophical talk the other day about God and life and creation and connections to the universe. This is at seven in the morning. And we were talking about how things really do seem connected within nature and how we seem connected to that. And so as we finished our last sentence, we looked over and about eight meters from us, a, a mom dolphin and her baby rose up and swam right toward us. And as if to like underscore that, a second mom dolphin came right after her and they swam right by us. And Eileen looked at me and I looked at her and I said, I think this was the sign we were supposed to see. <laughs> <laughs> so stuff like that happens where the other day I was in, I'm not in the Midwest, but I was in Southern California and I was with my friend and we were chatting and we don't always swim because we can't talk. So we were just swimming breaststroke and dog paddling. And my friend Susie said, oh, my gosh, look behind you. And just as I turned, I saw the depression. And it was a green sea turtle that had sort of just been swimming behind us, watching us paddling along. So for me, it's those moments where you sort of are involved with nature. You're connected to it and you see it. And it's just so different than getting up and swimming in a pool or just going for a walk. And so I think about those things. I think about when I'm, when I'm writing, you know, a lot of that time when we're in the water, you can just think. So for this last book, I was so excited about writing about it that I was up at three in the morning writing for two or three or four hours. And then I'd get in the water and swim and think about what I'd written and then go back and go back and work on the book some more. And so I think when you have that kind of energy, it goes back and forth with swimming and to creation and stuff. Do you ever have that happening with you? Yeah, although I probably don't find swimming quite so easy as you do. So, you know, there's always a touch of having to survive when I, when I if I'm a kilometre off the coast. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, you do feel because you, you, you're really enveloped by the by the water, you know, you're surrounded in a way that that's different to when you're just going for a run or a walk or something. You you really feel amongst it. So for me, and it's different temperature, and it's a you know, using different muscles. It is a different experience, I think. Yeah, I don't know if you have this happening right now in the area where we're swimming, but it's springtime in California, and so as we're swimming, it's sort of like swimming through ice cream and then hot fudge sundae. Right. You know, there's yep. this huge ripple of warm and cold meeting. So, you know, you're swimming in, you're, you suddenly stop like, oh, my gosh, it's cold. Or, oh, I don't want to leave here because <laughs> it's so warm. Is that, does that happen there where you are? It definitely does, especially down the just a little south of Sydney where some of the currents off the coast kind of peel away you get the different different temperature waters just just very close to each other and yeah it's really interesting to swim through that yeah it makes you well it, it sort of wakes you up and it relaxes you that's right it makes you move quickly through some bits
speaking of the mystical sort of experiences, I mean, you had a, a, a very notable one with a baby whale that, that you wrote about in, in Grayson, which is a fabulous story. I've heard you tell that story on, on some podcasts as well. That's a, that's a lovely one. It, actually, it was one of those, you know, actually, that was when I was training to swim the Catalina Channel the second time. And I was 17 years old and I was training on my own. And I had 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 been training. I've been going to high school. I was all set, just had this Saturday free. I was just going to swim for a short amount and then go see friends. And when I went to this workout, suddenly I discovered, because a fisherman told me, that there was a baby whale following me and it had been lost. So for hours, five hours or so, I spent swimming off the California coast, trying to help the baby find its mom. And I wrote a story about it that you mentioned, and it um, has been translated into 23 languages now. It's called Grayson in English, but the British version of the book is called The Day the Whale Came. And because they, okay, I'll tell you, because it was so funny, because when they were trying to decide the title for the book in England, there had been a book that had been just published in England by a man who was a transvestite and his name was Grayson. So the publisher in England was worried that people would be confused by the baby whale named Grayson and the man named Grayson. I didn't see there was room for a lot of confusion, but so the title of the, <laughs> so the title of the book in England is The Day the Whale Came. Okay. And also because Americans, I guess, or are more effusive than Brits generally, there were places, maybe three places in the book where I had to tone it down a little bit for British readers, which I thought was kind of fun. Yeah. And that was also, you know, this, this whole thing about when books are published, how they decide what they're called and what they're titled and and what an audience will look at the book and what they'll get out of it. And so I thought it was really interesting that there was such a difference between an American readership and a, and a British readership. Oh, well. And I don't know if there's a big difference between the American and the Australian. I think the Australians are very effusive as well. Yeah, I think we fall probably somewhere in the middle there. I, I wouldn't have thought that, that they'd be terribly much different in, in a book like that, but maybe there is. Maybe there is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and um, something you talked about before, you talked about the, the long preparation and how the swim is just the kind of the summit. So the, the Bering Strait must be the perfect example of that because that was many, many years in the making and then you're in the water for two hours. And then, you know, then right. the, after, the aftermath coming down the hill, that's a... That's another long, big story as well. Yeah, the the Bering Strait swim was, I think, as far as out there at that point in my life, it was the most challenging and it was the most um, politically difficult because the swim was really about swimming from the United States to the Soviet Union to open the border between the two countries at a time when President Gorbachev was talking about glasnost. But I initially wrote to Brezhnev and then Jopov and Chenyenko to try to get permission. And it was this 11-year journey of just trying to get the approval from, at that time, the Soviets to swim the Bering Strait. And it was sort of at the last minute that I was able to get the permission I needed. The swim itself was 
in 38 degree water. So I think that's two or three degrees C. And at that point, it was really challenging because the water temperature was colder than I'd ever swum in before. And I really felt like, you know, if something goes wrong, I could die on this one. So the crew that I had were really experienced Inuit, used to be called Eskimos, but they were in Zodiac, in Umiaks, which were rubber, rubber skin boats that were guiding me across from the United States to Soviet Union. And we had crew that were from the press and, and Dr. Keating from London and another physician and other people that were there to make sure the swim was safe, as safe as it could be. And then we wound up meeting um, the, the Russians now, the Soviets then, the Russians now at the halfway point. Um, so that was a huge goal. And I think what was so significant about it was that it did open the border and it did help to promote peace. And uh, not that much longer after that, the border between the wall, the Berlin Wall between East and West Berlin came down. And there were German swimmers that told me afterwards that the swim across the Bering Strait had helped that happen because the idea was that if what was called the ice curtain between the US and Soviet Union could melt, that that, that that border could open, that there could be other openings. So this mind shift occurred. And my thought was that, you know, we have so many things we can do in this world and the way we do it can impact others in small ways, but through that changes can occur. And so, you know, more recently, I was really concerned about what was going on in the Ukraine as millions of other people are. And so, you know, while I really was in favor of doing the swim to reach out to the Soviets, I was really upset with what was happening with the invasion of the Russians into Ukraine. So there were swimmers around the world that were asking me, what can we do? So there were Australians and Europeans and North and South Americans and Canadians and we all, and, and Asians who all joined together and did a swim for the Ukraine on April 4th, where we just put on something blue and yellow. And then the idea was to show that support, but also to donate to charities that were vetted that would support the Ukraine. And so I think it was somewhat helpful and maybe at some point we'll do it again. But um, the other thing that happens is that relationships in the world change and we have to change with those changes, I guess. And so I think there'll be other swimmers and other athletes and other journalists that figure out how to bridge these distances. And the swim across the Bering Strait was something that did that. Years later, I do a swim that was between Argentina and Chile to um, across the Beagle Channel. And I had support from the Argentines and Chileans to do it, but there was tension throughout the swim because at that point, the relationships between the two countries weren't great. But after that swim, I think it was about 10 years later, the president of Argentina and the president of Chile met on an oil rig in the Strait of Magellan to sign a treaty about oil rights. And they pointed to the swim as something that had been done to set a precedent. So I just thought, you know, we can do, again, you can just do little things, but if people can build on that, just like you build on a big goal on a swim and you can see those connections, people can do extraordinary things to make positive differences. 
And so that's sort of, you know, what I really like to write about and talk about, you know, that we can all make a positive difference in our own way, you know. And that's also back to the water rescue dogs of just to circle back for a minute, because when the people in Italy are training with their dogs, it's really selfless. They are not being paid. Their dogs aren't being funded. They are volunteering to do this. I think a lot like the Australians and New Zealanders do with their life saving clubs, where they people spend time patrolling the beaches and, and making sure that, pe- that people are safe. And so I really thought it was something to write about to highlight that we have some really great people in the world that are willing to do extraordinary things. And I think that's what I saw when I went to Island Bay, Island Bay, New Zealand, just when Cook Straits, my support team were from the surf club there. And I think that um, people like that don't get enough credit, you know? Yeah. I and that- I don't know in, in Australia now, it, are the life serving, are the life saving surf life saving clubs professional and volunteer or are they both nowadays oh, i think they're, they're pretty much all volunteer i mean maybe some of the guys on bondi rescue you that, that show might have made it to the states might make some money the very famous yeah. bondi. <laughs> but um yes I, I think for the most part everybody's a volunteer yeah it's really special you yeah. know it, it doesn't happen everywhere in the world and i i noticed in in a lot of your photos you're emerging from these swims very happy smiling I don't know whether that's delirium or something, but you do seem very happy coming out of them when it, when you can't have been in, you must have been in physical pain a lot of the time. You know, I think that when I complete a swim, there's the sense of elation because often there's so many, sometimes years that have gone into thinking about preparing for it, connecting, getting support to do it, self-funding it, you know, earning money and putting it aside and going to do it or piecing together sponsorship that when I have actually been able to go and do it, I'm excited. You know, it's, it's like you're, you're finally there and you're finally getting your chance. And then to be able to have that chance to succeed, it's really extraordinary. And to see the completion, but also, you know, I get so much of the excitement from my crew or so much of the ex- support from my crew when I'm, you know, halfway done and I'm freezing and I'm thinking, I'm not sure this is going to work. And they're like, you're okay. You look great. Keep going. And that's what kept, keeps me going. And so when a swim is completed, there's this great sense of we did it. And, and at the same time, there's a little bit of sadness because it's completed. But what I have learned is that it's really important to have other goals or other life goals that you segue to, because otherwise you can go through this period of time of now, what do I do with the rest of my life? You know, I sort of went through that when I was 15 years old of I've reached my highest goal at age 15. I've swum the English Channel. Now, what do I do? You know, and so. I think that if there's a way for us as athletes or just as people to have things that we're looking at for after we finish whatever we've done, I think that that momentum carries you forward instead of just stopping. And it gives you something else to focus on that maybe you spent so much training, you weren't able to spend as much time with family and friends and now you can, or maybe there's somebody that's coming along that can help, you can help offer your support to them. So I think that that's one of the big things that I learned through this long journey of 
have something beyond what you're what you're working toward. Yeah. Do you have any swims planned anywhere else you want to go? Do you want to go back swim in the Nile? I know that's a... <laughs> what, where, where's left? Well, to answer your two questions, the first question is no, never. I should never <laughs> say never, but I never want to swim in the Nile River again. Uh, I learned that it was not... Water quality issues were huge. <laughs> and, you know, I have... When I'm going to Europe this fall, there are places that I'd love to swim that I'm starting to do a little bit of research on, but they're not like big challenging swims. It's more that I just want to go and do a swim in these different waters and experience them. And it feels almost like I've come full circle because when I was a little kid, my parents had a swimming in Snow Pond in Maine, where my grandfather learned to swim, where my mother learned to swim, where this whole connection to the lake there was and that fun of being in fresh water and in the open water and now as I've gotten older I've you know first did these competitive pool swimming and on teams and on water polo teams and I managed the U.S. women's water polo team and traveled to Brisbane to for, for my sisters to be in the world championships in the water polo and so have had all these structured programs that I've done and broken world records and done things that were first. And now I'm back to where I just want to be able to swim where I can and have a new experience. And I think there's something just really simple, but something really beautiful in that. Yeah. Well, I would look forward to any of any new books coming out as well. That'd be exciting. And you've got, so you're on the, the tour for how long did you say? Six weeks? Is that right? Six weeks. I actually start on May 24th on the West Coast, and we'll be finishing in the Pacific Northwest after going all over the country on the 9th of July. But there's a good chance there'll be more dates that are added. And then in September, we'll be going to Europe. I'll be going to Europe for um, work over there. And I think that, you know, we'll see. One of the really exciting things that just recently happened is that Right now, Tales of Al hasn't been published yet, but because there have been so many pre-orders, it's already gone back to a second publishing. Fantastic. And the publisher and editor and everyone else are so excited because, well, I'm so excited because people are really ready for the story. You know, I think that they're ready for a happy story. And my first audience are our swimmers and athletes and triathletes. And my second at audience I think are just adventurers and now I think the other audience are dog people and so for me to be in a room full of dog people and swimmers and and athletes and adventurers will be really really fun good people uh, to be able to do this journey do you have a dog I used to have a yellow Labrador named Cody and he was my well my family is already my folks are always had dogs but at this point in my life, um, my husband and I travel so much that it's just not fair to have a dog. If we had a dog, it would be a pet setter's dog. <laughs> so I am able to get my dog fixes by swimming with friends' dogs or walking friends, friends walking with friends and their dogs, or um, just that's pretty much it. Yeah. 
I look forward to seeing the final version because I mean, your publicist was kind enough to send me the the pre-published version, but it didn't have any photos in it. So I want to I want to see all these big, oh. beautiful brown puppy dogs. <laughs> well, actually, you'll see a lot of the Newfoundlands, and I think I have to, I'm not sure of the final final photos, but the dogs that are part of the Italian Water Rescue Dog School are not just Newfoundlands. There are golden retrievers and Labradors and German Shepherds, and there are other breeds that are also coming to train with their owners and with instructors. So I sort of keyed in on the Newfoundland because they're big dogs. And I've had some experience with being with Newfoundlands, but I love that they're training other dogs as well. And so there's stories also about the other breeds who are equally smart or even smarter. And that was what was also really interesting is that the different breeds of dogs, it didn't matter often what their age was, whether or not one was better than the other. It, in terms of learning, it might be that one dog was just smarter than the other or caught on a little faster, or the owner understood how to help the dog more than the other dog. Uh, so there was this also this interesting thing where you could see owners and their dogs helping other owners and their dogs learning a certain skill. And again, it felt like being on a swim team. <laughs> you know, these, these things are going in my head like, oh yeah, remember when you had that, that swimmer, the Olympic Gary Hall, the butterflyer who won the gold medal, who, who was willing to show you how to do a dolphin kick better? Okay, this is the same thing going on here. You know, it, it was <laughs> just amazing to, to see that camaraderie, you know? Oh, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. How can I make it? How can I do this? How can I read it? It will never be enough. I don't seem to stop it. Never grow out of it. Never wear it. I think that the key to this for the open water swimmers and for the triathletes is that one of the best parts of the the swimming world of, of being out in the open water is trying new things and seeing what you're capable of doing. And I think that for me, the reason I've been able to do some really extraordinary swims is because I've had people watching over me. And so when people set out to do big goals, I think it's so important to really figure out who your team is that's going to be with you and to call out anyone that's negative uh, because that can really make it difficult to do a swim. But also it's worth listening to people that are sort of naysayers to say, you know, maybe I do need to have three support boats because the engine and two of them could conk out. Or maybe the negativity that I'm hearing is 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 somehow useful and i need to consider what they're saying and whether or not re it resonates with me because i think that what we're doing as open water swimmers and triathletes and just adventurers is that often we're going into new or unknown waters and so we have to always do it safely and we also have to make sure that the people we're doing it with that they're safe and so um i think that that when we realize that the swim is really about seeing what we're capable of doing, it makes it more exciting, you know? And I think that that's one of the big things about the things that I've done. And now 
the sport of open water swimming has just expanded around the world. I mean, people are doing everything from extraordinary long swims and challenging swims to extremely cold water swims and swimming in places that people haven't swum before. And I think that it's really fun to see that. You know, they don't, yeah. So there are a lot of people that think, oh, I have to swim the English Channel to be, to show that I'm a great, to show myself or to show others that I'm an extraordinary athlete or whatever it is. And I've often said to people, you know, you are really a warm water swimmer. And maybe it's better to look at some places where the water's really warm and do something fun in off the coast of Italy <laughs> or, or some lake, you know, why not do what you can succeed at and enjoy and, and look at that. Um, I guess those are some of the things that I look at and reflect on and say, uh, how can we enjoy what we're doing and not make it painful and torturous as you had <laughs> said earlier, <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to work through that to get to the other side, but if that's what this is all about, then you really might want to consider doing something else. Yeah, yeah. But it's amazing looking at the list of some of your swims. And I mean, you were doing a lot of these swims in the seventies and eighties, and then people weren't, people didn't do them again until, or at least in in the databases recorded till, you know, the two thousands or whatever, you were 20 years ahead of your time. Well, you know, there were swimmers that were doing sort of the standard swims and, and there was a lot of swimming in Britain and in the lakes and the locks and, and all that. But a lot of the swims that I did, people just didn't think were possible, like the Strait of Magellan or the Cape of Good Hope. or And, you know, I just talked to a group of swimmers in South Africa last week, and they call it the Cape Point swim that they're doing now. And there's one that they're doing across, I think it's called Table Bay or something like that in South Africa, where the distance is similar to the English Channel. And they're trying to get that as one of the swims that people consider to do from around the world. And I think that it's really wonderful to see how much the sport has grown, how many people are out there trying to do new things. And I think that there are people that are experimenting and it's fun to see it. Yeah, it's great. You must look at it with some sort of joy. Maybe that's even- Absolutely. Yeah, because you kicked a lot of this off, right? Well, I think- I think that, you know, we can, we can just swim in swimming pools and be safe and know that pretty much you're going to get to the other side and go there and work out and probably learn how to establish a pace, which is really important, and also learn interval training and get yourself to get your heart rate up and get strong physically. So that can help you when you're trying to go through a current on a long swim. But, and I think that swimming in a pool helps you also with friends and connections and, and not feeling alone when you're working out and having that competition and friendly competition really helps. But I think that that's to me like years ago and I never was good at it, but it was learning how to play the piano. It was like playing the scales over and over again as a point where you actually want to play a piece of music. And I think that swimming in the open water is like playing the music. Oh, that's, that's, it's where that's awesome. You, where you really get to take what you've learned as a swimmer, as a conditioned athlete, to then go into something new and play. Thanks so much to Lynn Cox for taking an hour out of her time on the other side of the world to have an hour-long Zoom conversation. 
That was so cool and a real privilege. If you'd like any more information on anything that you heard in this podcast, for instance, if you'd like to buy Lynn's new book, Tales of Al, The Water Rescue Dog, then get over to the website at www.thepodpodcast.net. That's www.thepodpodcast.net. And on there, you'll be able to find links to buy the book and to other things that we talked about in this episode, such as some of Lynn's achievements. Thanks again to Lynn, and thanks so much for tuning in. My name's Mark West. I'll catch you next time on The Pod.